All right, 25 till the top of the hour. Leonard Skinner, simple man. That means it's all things Bill O'Reilly. We're going to get uh, to the topic of, well, we have an election in 55 days. I want to ask him one more question. He's just released his new book today, part of his best-selling killing series. I mean, from killing Lincoln, Kennedy, Jesus, Patton, Reagan, Rising Sun, England, the SS. Um, all these books have done phenomenally well. Uh, killing Crazy Horse, The Merciless Indian Wars in America. How do you view one of the things that Ricky Medlock instilled in me when we did this tour with Leonard Skinner, um, and it was part of the Freedom Concert tours that I used to do, is this this passion among, you know, that that he has as a Native American for bravery, honor, valor that he says defined him and his family and his ancestors. And I loved all of that because I think that that is what makes any society a great society, those qualities. What did you find? That's why I put Crazy Horse on the cover. Here was a guy who was the best Native American military commander. And he had a very strict code of honor. Now, some of his braves broke it and the aftermath of the Little Big Horn, Custer's Last Stand, was as gruesome as you're going to find. And that was because of the personal animus between Crazy Horse and Custer, which we write about extensively in Killing Crazy Horse. But Custer's body was not touched. It was the only body of the almost 300 people the Indians killed in that battle, including two journalists, Hannity. Two journalists were along because Custer said, hey, right along with me, I'm going to kick uh, Crazy Horse's butt. Mm, didn't didn't the pan out the way he planned. No. And you have to take all, we took all of our, um, all of our reporting on the Little Bighorn battle from the Indians because they were the only eyewitnesses that lived. We don't report it from the white man's point of view which makes it a fascinating part of the book. But anyway, Crazy Horse had a, a sense of honor, and your friend in Leonard Skinner is absolutely correct. The bravery of these Native Americans up against a, the most powerful military machine in the middle of the 19th century after the Civil War. All of the veterans of the war went out west. All the people stayed in the army to defeat the Indians because there was so much chaos out there. Uh, that's how Custer got out there. And the Indians were outgunned, outmanned, out everything. And they individually won most of the fights. It's an incredible saga. And nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. And that's what, that, again, we go back to the fact that if you love your country, you've got to know about your country. And that's why. And by the way, these. that's the good, the bad, and the ugly, because if you want to become Absolutely. a more perfect union, you've got to acknowledge fault. Where it exists. You know, all of this stuff was driven by money. I always say slavery money, Indian appropriation of their lands money. It always comes down to money. And you know what I wrote? You're going to get a kick out of this. You're a football fan, Hattie, right? Yes, sir. Why, why are the San Francisco 49ers haven't been canceled? Why? The 49ers, as I write about in Killing Crazy Horse, were prospectors who went in and decimated the California Indians. Stole their land, mined on their land, wiped them out with the help of the California governor. I don't think it was Schwarzenegger. It was a little bit further back. Okay? So what do we have the 49ers for? The 49ers should have been canceled a long time ago. 
But if you're going to cancel them, I have a new name for the San Francisco football team. What is it? The San Francisco Pelosi's. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and then you're going to need a new. By the way, everyone gets a free hair salon appointment um, with no, with no, every no. with every season ticket holder. All right. Last question. Every All one right. of your Killing Series books, and as I was reading through it, I actually still have more to, to get through. Um, as I was reading through it, I'm trying to figure out, all right, where are they going after O'Reilly here? I mean, you got you got hammered on killing Reagan. You got hammered on killing Jesus. Yeah, and everything and, we wrote was true. Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not questioning any of that. I'm not a historian. Yeah. But, I, but where do you think they're going to attack you on this book? I don't think that they're going to do it. I, I really think that this book is so tight. Um, Dugard and I, I mean, we hired... Uh, historians to read the manuscript. We hired, uh, not hired, but we sent it to Native American scholars. I don't think they're going to come at us because it would be very difficult to say this didn't happen when we can prove it did. All of our research is primary source material. That means that we don't go buy another book or we don't go buy a magazine. We do it. Dugard went there. Okay, He read the letters. You know, Indian history is oral tradition, but it got into the written. Once the Indians became more educated, they wrote down the stories of the Little Bighorn. They wrote down what Geronimo and Cochise said. So I don't know where they're going to come. Man, I, I, you're probably right. They probably will. But we're ready, as I said. Well, I don't think you really give a rip. Let's be honest. Um, we're 55 days out of an election. Um Obviously, we have a presidential candidate that was clearly in decline. Uh, Biden is out there all day today. He blames the coronavirus on Trump. Meanwhile, he was against the travel ban, the quarantine, the subsequent travel bans, and the Democrats were impeaching. Um, and, you know, a guy that rarely has to ever answer a question. Now he gets caught saying, can you move up the teleprompter while answering questions? And he's protected by a media mob that hates Donald Trump. How's this going to play out? I used to do that. Uh, Can you move (laughs) up that prompter? Come on. Where are my questions? Yes. Listen, um, you touched on this, but this this tells you everything you know you need to know about Joe Biden. I'm a simple man. I have a simple question. What does Joe Biden stand for? Give me one thing he stands for. Anybody listening, all the millions of people listening to Sean Alley right now, give me one thing. He doesn't stand for anything. 24 days ago on August 13th, at a press conference in Wilmington, Joe Biden said, let's institute a mask mandate nationwide. Remember that? Yep. Okay. 24 days ago. On September 6th, three days ago, he said to uh, affiliate KTVK in Phoenix, Arizona, Quote, the federal government, there's a constitutional issue, whether the federal government could issue such a mandate. I don't think constitutionally they could. So I wouldn't issue a mandate. (laughs) Wait a minute, Joe. 24 days ago, you said I'd institute a mass mandate. Now you won't. That epitomizes Biden. So simple. I said, "This, this is perfect for the simple man. Contradicts himself. 24 days later, on a huge issue, what does Joe Biden stand for? I think it's a great question. Um, I've never seen a mobilization, and I was making this point on radio and TV yesterday, of 
You've got the media mob, as I call them, and it's it's everybody in print. It's three broadcast networks. It's every cable news network except for Fox. I mean, it's it's so one sided. You got Hollywood. You've got the elites all standing against Donald Trump. They all think he's going to lose. And I went back and reminded people yesterday of everything they were predicting and the fact that they were laughing at the idea that Trump could run, win the nomination and then win the presidency. Um, I saw that on t- on your show, TV show last night. Well, thank you, you for watching. Clips of all those pinheads, um, <laughs> and I mean, it was startling. And I did not even remember the Colberts of the world and and all these people. I am never going to be president. Look, it just points out how ignorant. And when you're a hater, and this is for everybody, listen to me. When you hate, that you're incapable of making sound judgments. You can't, because that hate is the most powerful emotion we have, and it clouds you. Now, do the media elite believe Donald Trump is gonna lose? I don't think so. I think that's why they're hating so much. I think they know that right now in America, the violence in Portland, Oregon, Minneapolis, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and other cities has shaken the independent voters, the people who aren't ideological, has shaken them so much that that has overcome COVID and is now the primary motivator for voting for president. Biden has not said one word, not one word, against the Black Lives Matter movement. Again, I have nothing with that slogan. That slogan is fine. Black lives do matter. But the movement is Marxist. And he has not said one word against it. I think that has turned the tide in favor of Donald Trump. Now, he might lose it because you know he could say anything at any time. But September 29th is the defining moment in this election. That's the first debate. Yep. If he does not show well on September 29th in Cleveland, Donald Trump will win. You think it's a one-night thing? Now, I would argue... Let me put it nicely. I would guess that Joe Biden's going to be drinking a lot of coffee that day and leading up to that debate. And I would imagine Joe has been spending a lot of his basement bunker time, you know, memorizing his lines, Bill. Uh, I don't think you dispute that. Well, Chris Wallace is the moderator and we know him very well. And I think Wallace is going to come in loaded with questions that are not going to be predictable. And that will be very interesting. You've got to hit both candidates with questions they are not expecting and then follow up. Say you didn't answer it or I'm not clear about the answer or whatever. I think Wallace is going to do that. Well, I thought he moderated the best debate in the last election cycle. That was my opinion. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Wallace doesn't like Trump. All right, that's a fact. I don't dispute that, but I'm. Uh, no, but I but thought he was the most fair of the three debates in 2016 by far, by a big margin. It's, it's a little bit more than that, though. It's a legacy play for Chris. So his father, Mike Wallace, in my opinion, best broadcast journalist in history. You were but friends with him. Up to what? You were friends with him. I was very good friends with him, and he was unbelievable. Well, I should show everybody how old O'Reilly is. Jeez. Well, I was I was only sixteen. I delivered papers. So. <laughs> You're such a liar. Yeah, you know, yeah. for a simple man, you got a very complicated response that comes flying out. But go ahead. All right. So Chris Wallace, a legacy play. All right. This is his big stage. 
millions of people all over the world are going to watch this debate. So he's got to be tough on both candidates. I think he will be. Can Biden handle that? I mean, we'll see. I've got a question. I'm not going to tell it to you now, but I will tell it to you when we talk right before the debate. That would knock Joe Biden off the stage. And it is an extremely simple question because, as you know, I am a simple man. All right, Bill O'Reilly, his new book is out, Amazon.com. We have a link on Hannity.com. It's now in bookstores everywhere. It's called Killing Crazy Horse, The Merciless Indian Wars in America. It's part of his Killing series. Now, what is it? This is the best-selling series, history series ever. What do you Non-fiction book series of all time. That's pretty big. That's pretty exciting. And is that amazing? It certainly I, I, beats O'Reilly, the O'Reilly factor for kids, for crying out loud. I mean, you know, you know we have grandpa kids lecturing alone, kids. Jeez. Leave those kids alone. They love oh that book. Oh, my gosh. All right. I'm uh, giving that book out on Halloween. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You'll be giving away all the, the bin copies. Uh, all right. It's on uh, Amazon.com. Hannity.com, bookstores everywhere, Killing Crazy Horse, The Merciless Indian Wars in America. Bill O'Reilly, always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Good luck with the book, and uh, uh, we'll have you back next week. Sean's new book, Live Free or Die, is now available. Feel free to grab your copy in stores and online everywhere. Live Free or Die. All right, live free or die, America, the world on the brink. 50 days, you are the ultimate jury. On sale, 40% off Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, Costco, Walmart, Target, you name it. Uh, Nice discounts, but it defines everything that this election is all about and what impact it will have on the future of this country. And it is deep and it is profound. Um, We've been talking a lot about the assassination attempt against these LAPD officers. And then, of course, you know, the lunatics on the left showing up and literally taunting the police. Hope you effing die uh, while the police are in there being operated on and fighting for their lives. It's not just uh, an L.A. thing. We have, what, 54 shot again this weekend in Chicago, 13 dead, six dead in New York City, 18 shootings there. And, you know, violence and crime and anarchy spiraling out of control. Democrats, you know, only now this this is terrible. Well, they didn't, why didn't they mention it during their convention? Because Don Lemon pointed it out. Uh-oh. Finally, law and order and safety and security is on the ballot. And, yeah, it's showing up in the polls and it's showing up in the focus groups. So we better change our, our opinions now. Pretty scary. Uh, anyway, joining us, a good friend of the program, is Pastor Daryl Scott. He's chairman of the Urban Revitalization Coalition, and he's just come out with his brand new book, Nothing to Lose, which, by the way, was Donald Trump's message to African Americans and minorities last time. You have nothing to lose. They've been promising you everything for, for decades, and they delivered nothing. Think about all these liberal cities, liberal politicians, the larger percentages, 90 plus percent of African-Americans, usually in a lot of these elections, voting for Democratic candidates. Well, how do you grade them on law and order and safety and security in these cities and states run by liberal Democrats for decades? How's their educational system? Because those are the two most fundamental jobs of any politician. Anyway, again, it's called Nothing to Lose, Unlikely Allies in the Struggle for a Better Black America. Uh, Pastor Scott, I actually had the pleasure of actually speaking from the pulpit of his church once. was the biggest mistake he ever made in his life by allowing that to happen. <laughs> I made it, unlike Neil Bortz, I made it through. I didn't, I didn't cuss. I didn't use one cuss word, which was pretty good for me. 
when I'm out in public. Um, but your whole life is a miracle to me, Pastor. Um, I admire you on so many levels. Many years ago, you were living a life of crime and drugs and madness and, and you know, you almost didn't make it. And your faith, your belief in God pulled you out of this and it transformed your life. And that's how many years ago? 30 some odd years ago. Yeah, almost close to 40 years ago. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, you, I talk about you in uh, the book. I mentioned you in the book. on. The oh, I saw it. I know what you're going to say. And I'm like, okay. The one part that stands out is I said, I really believe when Sean Hannity's broadcast career is over, he will enter into the ministry. I oh, said it, gosh. and I mean it. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know what? I'm the one that needed all the prayer and fasting. I'm the one that got in trouble. I've been an incorrigible kid since, you know, when I was young, it was incorrigible. You know, being a talk show host, you got to throw a few sharp elbows once in a while, Reverend. I, I don't mind throwing some elbows. You know what, though? Verbal. Me, I'm being honest. And I know out of all of my colleagues and everything, you're probably one of the most spiritual guys I know. And I mean it. I've never believed more in my life in terms of my faith. I really, it's, it's never been this strong. I realize yeah. that we're nothing but without God in our lives. That's my own opinion. I'm not trying to proselytize anybody or convert anybody. I think there's a misunderstanding of what Christianity is. I think Christianity is first, you know, coming to a realization that you're not as great as you think you are and being willing to surrender yourself to a better way of life and invite God into your heart so you can be a better person. That's a, that, to me, is the nuts and bolts of it. It doesn't get yeah. any more complicated. I don't know if everyone must think that Christians got to be perfect. I, I think the Christians I know are the ones saying they know they're not, and they want to be better. And we're in a daily quest for God to uh, uh, improve us, to work on us, to continue to work on us. And since we're on the subject of God, I will say this, and I said it in the book, I believe in the omniscience of God, uh, the all-knowingness of God. I believe God sees the end from the beginning. I made a couple of examples, Joseph being one and David being another. And I said God started at the palace and worked his way back to the pit for Joseph. And then he got Joseph from that pit and worked him up to the palace. The same way with David, he was prophesied that he would be king while he was still tending his father's sheep. And he went back to tending sheep, and God got him from the sheepfold and took him to the palace. I said that to say this. I really believe that when I was out in those streets living that life that I was living, and I really believe that during that time when Donald Trump was living the life he was leading and he was building buildings and doing whatever it was he was doing, God knew that was my future president right there. When he looked at him and God looked well, at him. Well, I mean, let, let's go through the Bible a little bit. <laughs> you know, my years in, in Catholic schools and a seminary, let me, let's, I'll give you a little bit of knowledge. David, you know, was was chosen by God, God's favorite. You know, according to the Bible, he had like 500 concubines. Everybody, I don't, concubines is a word that's very outdated. Uh, but he couldn't withstand, I guess, the temptation of Bathsheba and sent her husband to the front lines to be killed after he got her pregnant. Uh, Moses, you know, never made it to the promised land because of murder. We know about uh, Saul of Tarsus and the conversion on the road to Damascus. Uh, you know, why are you persecuting my people? I would assume the 12 apostles, 11 of which were married, that they probably as fishermen maybe used salty language uh, and weren't so politically correct in their day. Maybe that's an assumption on my part, but I'm but maybe wrong. Um, and it seems that God has a, an interesting way of picking the people that aren't perfect, the people that need the help as, yeah, as people right. he chooses to lead things. Well, the Bible says God chooses, chooses the foolish things of the world to confound those which are wise. 
you know, to be honest, and you were there from the very beginning, way back in 2015, it seemed a foolish choice to back Donald Trump for president of the United States. Uh, he was mocked. He was derided. He was laughed at. He was he was castigated, criticized, ridiculed. I'm going to be honest, he has a lot thicker skin than I have. And, you know, we watched this guy go from number 17 in the field of 17 to go all the way to the presidency of the United States. And one thing I always say is this. I don't see how he could have lost because of all the prayer that he received in that time. Every time he turned around, Donald Trump was getting prayed on by someone else, by this organization, that organization, these preachers, those preachers. He was the man who we both know solicited the help of God in his political campaign. And I even said it on last week, and I said it jokingly. You know, when I first met him in 2011, he was considering, and I talk about it in the book, he was considering running for president against Barack Obama in 2012. And he asked a group of preachers uh, to pray on him that God would give him the wisdom to make the right decision, to give him the wisdom to know whether or not to run in 2012. And I said, I think God spoke to him and said, hey, Donald, don't run in 2012. Run in 2015, and I got you. <laughs> oh, I, I, I hope I never hear those words in my ear because I think I want to uh, – at that point, I'd rather go deaf because uh, who would ever want to run for president in this day and era? I mean, you see what's happening. Here's what I don't understand. Let's, let's get to the bottom of this, because you, you're pointing out nothing to lose was Donald Trump's message to right. African-Americans and minorities in the country. And what he was referring to is what I mentioned at the start of this, this hour, which is that, you know, Democrats come calling every two and four years. I, I have laid out the Hannity history lesson on the use of the race card. You know, they're going to put you all back in chains and Republicans have the wrong agenda for African-Americans and they don't even want to count you in the census. And it's like my father was killed all over again and elect a Republican and black churches are going to burn. President saying, what have they done for your school system? What have they done for, to, to make your community safe and secure? Nothing. And in he comes, and what does he do? He's able to do something remarkable, and that is record low after record low after record low unemployment for every minority demographic in the country. Barack and Joe didn't do that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, during the 2016 campaign, we had those on the black left uh, that were constantly complaining about or decrying the condition of the black community, endeavoring to make that a campaign talking point. What are you going to do for the black community? Because the black community is so dysfunctional, it's so disenfranchised. The black community is, 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 is uh, in such a deplorable condition that what are you going to do if you're president to um, improve the conditions in the black community? And Donald Trump asked, Trump asked a question that is right. Okay, if it's that bad, if it's as bad as, as the black left is endeavoring to make it, if it's as bad as the Democratic Party is saying it is, after eight years of a black president, if the black community is still in this bad a shape, then what do you have to lose voting for me? <laughs> I can't make it any worse. <laughs> and right. what he was saying was, give me a chance. Give me an opportunity and watch what I do. And he stepped up to that plate when given that opportunity by 8% of the black voting community. And what has he done? Criminal justice reform, urban revitalization, opportunity zones, prison reform, historic low levels of 
uh, unemployment, historic funding for HBCUs, and there are so many other things on the table. He's done some ceremonial and symbolic gestures as well, designated uh, Martin Luther King's home, uh, birth home, as a national landmark. He's pardoned Jack Johnson posthumously. He's done a lot of things to endeavor himself to the black community, but he's not done it for the sake of politics or for the sake of pattern. He's done it because it was part of his overall agenda from the beginning to improve living conditions for all Americans. You know, you think about, you know, your life, and, and I love that you talk about your transformation and and how things have changed. And you were right there with the president every step of the way in 2015 and 16. Um, and, yeah, and, and you, by the way, and you talk about all the different people that are publicly known and your relationships with all of them. I tend to stay away from a lot of that part of it, but, um, and how, you know, you know, being on shows like my show and fake news, CNN and on with Van Jones and, and Don Lemon, I guess it might be a different experience when you're on their show, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know why they were always, you know, when I would be on with the white uh, news hosts, they would be more polite. Uh, the Brooke Baldwin's, Anderson Coopers, they would be more polite, but what they would do, they would always go get a black person, a black contributor, to come on against uh, myself and even other black surrogates for President Trump. And the black uh, contributors they would bring on would be the nastiest, most insolent, disrespectful people you ever want to meet in your life. And Don Lemon would be pretty disrespectful as well because they felt that because they were black, they could disrespect another black. And, you know, me, I didn't take that crap. And so I would hit them back and smack them in the mouth twice as hard as they would smack me. And they didn't like it, and they didn't like me for it. And they would even question the call of God on my life. They would say, well, how can you be a pastor and, and respond to us like this? And I would say, well, if I'm a pastor, you shouldn't talk to me like that in the first place. But, you know, the I, you know, I, I don't know why there's this image that field. it would always be one against three and one against four. It would be one Trump supporter and three or four Hillary supporters or three or four Democratic supporters. It, always, well, it was even worse. Uh, Jeffrey Lord would sit on these panels of eight. and It was him versus everybody else or Kaylee McEnany, yeah. would, you know, versus everybody else. And, and right. so, I, you know, they obviously stacked the deck, but you're pretty good at defending yourself. I don't have any worries about you. How do you think, <laughs> you know, look. There's polls out now that show that African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans are showing more support for Donald Trump. I mean, in the case of African-Americans, it's three times the support he's had that he had in 2016. And with Hispanic-Americans, that last poll I think I saw was up 12 or 14. My question is, are those polls real? Because if they're real and they translate into votes, this is a whole different race this year. I'm going to say the polls aren't real only because I believe there's more support for him than the polls reflect. You know, our people culturally, we don't answer a lot of questions from strangers. That's just just the way it it is. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of people in the black community and the Latino community, but I'll key in on the black community, that don't want to be a part of cancel culture. They don't want the arguing. They don't want the bickering. They don't want the back and forth. They don't want the ostracism, the criticism, the condemnation that comes with being a, a, an outspoken Trump supporter. But they know that when they get in that booth, they're going to vote. I think the poll right, numbers stay are right there. higher the, for those that support him. Yeah, stay right there. Pastor Darrell Scott, nothing to lose. Uh, unlikely allies in the struggle for a better black America. I want to get a prediction from you when we get back. For one, Sean, you want to be a part of the program. Our friend Pastor Daryl Scott uh, remains with us. 
Uh, he's got a brand new book out, Nothing to Lose, Unlikely Allies in the Struggle for a Better Black America. We've talked at length. The president ran on a slogan for minorities. Well, you got nothing to lose because they didn't they, they make all the promises every two years, every four years. They tell you Republicans are racist and sexist and misogynist and homophobic and xenophobic and Islamophobic. And they want dirty air and water and they pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. Well, the, you know, they, the Paris Climate Accord recognizes China as a third world country, so they don't have to pay what we pay. How about we stop and get out of it for that reason, um, which is nuts. But the president did something Barack and Joe never did for minorities in this country, created opportunity zones and in places where neighborhoods and, and Americans have been literally denied opportunity. Uh, the president was the one that funded for the longest commitment, lo- largest amount of money to historically black colleges. Criminal justice reform wasn't Barack and Joe. It was. Donald Trump prison uh, police reform. It was not Barack and Joe it was Donald Trump record low unemployment for African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, women in the workplace, youth unemployment, African-American youth unemployment. Donald Trump did that. Not Joe and not Barack. It's amazing. Their economic you know, record was atrocious. I mean, I, it's amazing to me. The mob, the media will never point any of these things out to you. They just they just refuse. I'll give you 13 million more Americans food stamps. They increased the people, the number of Americans on food stamps by 58 percent. Eight million more Americans in poverty after eight years of Joe and Barack. That's over 43 million Americans. They left in poverty. Lowest labor participation rate since the 70s. Ninety five million Americans out of the labor force under Barack and Joe. African-Americans out of the labor force was 18.5 percent. The worst recovery since the 40s, one in five American families didn't have a single member of their family in the workforce. One in six men in those important work years of 18 to 24 were either in jail or living at home with mommy and daddy. Lowest uh, home ownership rate in 51 years and accumulated more debt than every 43 administrations before them combined. And Trump shattered every record. All right, which raises the question for Pastor Scott. His brand new book is out, Hannity.com, Amazon.com. Nothing to lose, unlikely allies in the struggle for a better black America. First, you you took a lot of heat as an African-American pastor in Cleveland for supporting Donald Trump, didn't you? Yeah, I took a lot of heat, but I don't know, maybe because of some psychological defect I have, it really didn't bother me that much. Yeah, by the way, I, 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 I have the same defect. I just don't give a flying, you know what. In some cases, it's like pouring gasoline on a fire, uh, you know, and so, you know, it fuels, it motivates. Uh, but, you know, I knew one thing. I knew from the private conversations I had with then-candidate Trump all the way back to 2011, when he and I first had our conversations regarding the condition of the black community, he told me out of his mouth all the way back in 2011, he said, I believe unemployment, underemployment, depressed living conditions, and poor schooling contributes to the disparities and the uh, overall uh, depression of the black community. And that if I was president, jobs, better jobs, improving their surroundings, their communities, and giving them better opportunities for schooling would go a lot, uh, go a long way in elevating the community. He told me that in 2011, and I believed it, and he began repeating the same thing 
in 2016, and I had no reason not to believe him. The Democrats have been selling us a bill of goods for years. Hillary had been in office for years, you know, prior to that in, in, in politics. You had Joe Biden and Barack Obama. Here's Joe Biden working with the first black president for eight years, eight straight years. And you can't think of one positive thing that they did exclusively for the benefit of the black community. How is it that so Joe Biden have... gets away with his his praise of the former Klansman, Robert Byrd, the guy that filibustered the Civil Rights Act? Oppose the Voting Rights Act. How does Biden partner with this guy uh, to fight back against the integration of schools because he doesn't want his kids going to school, um, you know, uh, that, that he called a racial jungle? Kamala Harris, you know, pounded him in a debate, but now she's his VP candidate. You're right, and I believe that's why they won't allow those two to make appearances together because the question is going to have to come up. You called this guy a racist months ago in the primary. What, what happened? Either you were lying then and he wasn't a racist or you, you, for the sake of an opportunity, which is what I believe, you're talking about a sellout. And they got the nerve to call me a sellout. A sellout is a person that violates personal principles for the sake of advancement, uh, for the sake of gain. She sold out for Joe. The, the prospect of being vice president made her abandon all of her prior opinions of him. But here's a guy who has a well-documented history of negativity towards the black community, well-documented in public life, public service. We have it on video. We have it on record. We have it in the He gets a pass, Pastor. He gets a pass. He does. All right. Here's the important last question. Prediction. There weren't many of us that saw the path for Donald Trump to become president in 2016. We were both we both saw that path was possible. I see it's possible in 50 days. I can't guarantee it. I don't have a crystal ball. I think that, you know, in my mind, you better act as though you're, you're six points down. You got two minutes left in the game. You have no timeouts. You're on your own 20, and you got to march down the field 80 yards, cross the plane, and kick the extra point to win. It's got to be an all-hands-on-deck moment, and if people want to stop this radical agenda, they, they better get and go out to vote, especially in your state of Ohio. You're absolutely right. In, in Ohio and nationwide, we have to get out and support uh, President Donald Trump. And I'm also believing, I'm believing there'll be between uh, 20 to 25 percent support from the black community. That's my prediction. Uh, the silent majority, they, all of them together, because I know too many in the hood now that were virulent anti-Trumpers three, four years ago that love him now and they're going to support him. There's a groundswell of support for Donald Trump in the black community is going to surface. I'm believing between 20 and 25 percent. A bold prediction. If that if that happens, it's game over. Donald Trump will be reelected. I'm believing so. All right. Well, uh, say hello to your beautiful wife. I don't know why she seemed to like me more than you. She told me so. (laughs) I'm teasing. She recognizes good people. You don't oh, get man. on her nerve like I do. <laughs> no, no, no. She's awesome. Uh, please please send my best regards. She's a great lady. Uh, all right, my friend. God bless you. Nothing Thanks. to lose. Unlikely allies in the struggle for a better black America. Past Daryl Scott. Hannity.com, Amazon.com. Now out in bookstores everywhere. You're going to want to get a copy. Terry is in Florida. Terry, how are you? Glad you called. Thanks for being with us. Sean, it's an honor to talk to you. Thank you for taking my call, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, I just wanted to express a concern. You know, everything that's going on with law enforcement and the hate for law enforcement. I'm in corrections, 
and my brothers and sisters, you know, we're outnumbered 40 to 1 when it comes to the prisons, and we're already shorthanded, and what happens if this spreads and the inmates start to riot onto us, and we don't carry weapons inside the prison system. We have nothing to protect ourselves. You know, nobody's thinking about that, and, you know, we're kind of like the the forgotten no, Listen, my, I, I don't know if you know, my mom was a prison guard her, all her, my, my young life growing up, all her adult life. She worked 16-hour yes, shifts. I barely saw her. She was working for her family. And, and she is one of the ones that made it through, and it's, it's a very, you have to be a special kind of person to work inside the prison system. I Listen, I wouldn't want that job in a million years, but she was convinced I was going to be on the other side of the jail. She, she, she's since passed away, but I think she worked herself to death, to be honest. I, listen, you're right. You guys can be sitting ducks there. And these, yes, these inmates, I watched every prison show that's ever been made. These inmates are very clever. Uh, they have the ability. They make weapons inside of jail. They make their own hooch inside of jail. They get drugs and phones inside of jail. I don't know how they do it, but they've, they've, you know, if they ever used the, the creative genius that exists in there for something good, they'd all be rich and they wouldn't need to be in jail. Um, it's kind of sad to see that talent wasted on just, a, you know, the criminal mind. But in many ways, you're right. You're a sitting duck. What are you going to do? What are you going to? There's not much you can do. If they decide that they want to turn against the guards, that could happen. It's happened before. We've we've witnessed this before. Now the only thing you can do at that point is, you know, try and get in and save the guards that are in there, and it's going to be a violent ending. But you know, yep. I don't know. I don't know what else you can do except keep these guys locked up in isolation, or you know, twenty three hours a day and let them out one at a time. I, you know. That doesn't go a long way to rehabilitating anybody, right? No, it doesn't. And the uh, best you can do is just keep us all in your prayers, all law enforcement. I love my brothers and sisters, and and uh, I just pr- pray for us as we I try do to make too. It through this. That's a that's a really really hard job. And I I watched. Yeah, my mom wouldn't even talk about. It. I think she was embarrassed. She was a prison guard. She didn't want to. You never wanted me to talk about it. Well, you know. I, you know, I'm actually proud she did that. I mean, she did it, and she worked the extra shifts, the 16-hour shifts all the time, so our kid, her kids didn't do it for vacations and new cars. They didn't get them. They didn't take vacations. They did it so their kids could go to Catholic schools. And, they, you know, they sacrificed both my parents to do that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's exactly the most pleasant job on earth, but she succeeded in as much as, you know, she accomplished her goal. And paid a price for it. I believe probably died young because of it. So it's that stressful and that difficult a job and the kind of hours she was working was insane. Just insane. You know, I, when I try to explain this to my own kids, they don't get it. All right, Dad. I know. Okay, Dad. Leave me alone, Dad. Um, they get it. And I'll, to be perfectly blunt, I didn't appreciate it enough when I was young. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been so incorrigible to my poor mother. Don't leave this house. I'd be like, you can't stop me. Isn't that terrible, Linda? That's awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about the same way you are now when I tell you to do something. You when say your no. father gets home, that's what I got. Wait till your father gets home. Then she'd get him all worked up. I'd walk in the door and off comes the belt and here we go. Oh, man. And some people, by the way, if anyone did that today, you'd be brought up on child abuse charge. My father well, didn't abuse me. Well, that's the problem. There's way too many parents trying to be friends to their kids instead of trying to be parents. Your kids I don't try like to be you. my, I tell my kids all the time, I'm not your friend. You want a friend? Go find somebody else. Exactly right. I am your parent. Exactly right. And I'm going to remain your parent until you show me you're an adult. Did you see that New York Post article on the Brat Pack in New York City? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, these little these little domestic terrorists that are out there blowing everything up. Oh, you mean the girl with her little dossier of uh, plans to, to kick people out of their disgusting. homes and apartments in New meanwhile, York? Yeah. Meanwhile, she's got more money than God. I'm yeah, like, she was oh. in the parents' second home. Parents must, own must like be, a $1.8 million dollar apartment in New York. They had a second home on seven acres. That's where they found her. It's hard. It's really, it's a struggle to hide on those seven acres. You know, I really feel yeah, for her. Yeah, so hard. You know, poor, poor little rich kid. Makes me sick. I, I, I just, they know not what they do. You know, think about it. They just, they just, they grew up in a school system that is deranged and indoctrinates them. Okay, so them. I don't disagree with you, but by the same token, I think of like the Bernadine dorm and, and, and the Bill Ayers of our time and, and what they did with the Weather Underground. And we had that same thought, right? Like, they know not what they do. Okay, well, 20 years later, they were still as radicalized as they were 20 years ago, and they had no remorse or repentance for what they did. So I, that's look, what I'm they, afraid of when I look they at domi- these kids. Th- this mindset dominates academia. You know, I stay out of my kids' colleges stuff. I just stay the hell away because I can't get, I, I'll drive myself nuts. I really will. I, I, when my kids tell me what they're learning and, and the stuff that the professors say, now my kids happen to agree with their dad. It's pretty interesting, but I tell them, don't express your views in college. Just shut up. I was just talking about this yesterday at church. I was standing way, there with some folks Can you imagine me telling them to shut up? I'm like, you know what? Yes, just, I can. Just get your degree. Do your thing. And if, you, if, it, if it warrants you can speak up, I'll support you speaking up. But honestly, if you know, you got to really want to enter that world. Uh, you know, like, that's why I admire Charlie Kirk so much. Him and Turning Point USA. Um. I'm just not ready for my kids to take on the burden of, you know, having a dad that's a well-known conservative. It's just not worth it to me. You know, let them enjoy their childhood. Let them find what they love in life. And then I'll support them to get there. But I've told both my kids, I said, I'm not giving you all my money. You got to live life. You were born. God gave all of you, both of you talent. Find it. I'll help you find it. I'll give you the resources you need to do the best job you can. But after that, you got to work. You got to find you got to serve other people in this life. You don't get served your whole life. You know, this is like the perfect enclave into doing our job creators live read here because job creator is is all about that. You know, that's what they are. They're about getting people to work, showing them how to get a job, showing them how to get, you know, their best skill set. And this is something that these kids have never had to think about. And now, you know, we're the taxpayer is paying them to be political terrorists in our streets to work for act blue and democracy now and all these other people and I'm, I'm telling you the search for the money behind these these protests and the riots that's going to be the real source to the answer of how we put an end to it i think you're right we'll get live free or die america the world on the brink 800-941-SEAN toll-free telephone number 40 percent off by the way uh, as it relates to uh, uh, now getting the definitive information on what this campaign is and will be all about and what's at stake in all of this. Uh, Byron York is the chief political correspondent for the Washington Examiner. He's a great columnist, great author, Fox News contributor, provides names, countless on-the-record, behind-the-scenes accounts for the true motives of Russiagate, impeachment, the witch hunt, Built on dozens of hours of interview in his brand new book, it's called Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. And this is a must-read book because, you know, we got an election coming up in 49 days. And, you know, why why Donald Trump initially resisted advice to fire Comey? Conversations exposing Mueller's suspected cognitive decline. Everybody knew about it. I don't know what GPS is. It's not a trick question. 
have no idea what Fusion GPS is. I didn't know I had a Clinton attorney working for me. I mean, it's unbelievable. And he obviously, when he did testify, he wasn't on, not in the loop, basically knew nothing. It was an embarrassment. Uh, Bill Barr has commented how there could be additional criminal charges in the Durham investigation, and he doesn't think the Durham interim report will affect anything regarding the election. And here's what he said. Let me ask you finally about the Durham report. Um, Is John Durham nearing the end of his investigation? Yeah, I'm not going to characterize exactly where he is. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Would you say it's unlikely that there'll be further criminal charges? No, I wouldn't say that at all. No. So there could be? Yeah, there could be. Will we hear anything about the Durham report before the election? Yeah, I'm not going to get into that either. Well, could there, for example, be an interim report? I'm not going to get into what there might be. Well, how about the question this way? If there is an interim report before the election, won't some people think that that's an attempt to influence the election? Or would that be a fair accusation if there were an interim report? Well, this is sort of a hypo or a hypo. Why not? Okay, but I'll just say, you know, nowadays there are people who will say anything and you can almost bank on the fact as to what they're going to say. And I don't let that bother me. I'm going to do what I think is right and in the public interest. You wouldn't be concerned if there were an interim report? depends on what the report said. And, and, you know, as I've already said, you know, I'm conscious of the election and I don't think any of the things uh, that are being worked on uh, are going to have an adverse effect on that. And I also think there's, you know, strong public interests involved as well. What would be the utility, though, in an interim report? Why not wait till it's done? Well, I haven't said there is going to be one. And that's a hard question to answer in the abstract. The book is called Obsession Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Byron York is uh, with us, uh, investigative reporter. Uh, A lot of bombshells in this book. We have to see this also through the prism of, you know, now Mueller's team, 27 phones were wiped clean, and they all seem to make the same mistake. And Andrew Weissman admits making it. Uh, on one phone, and then he makes up an excuse for another phone, 27 of them, because they put in the wrong passwords over and over again? That sounds a little suspicious, Byron York. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. It, it Look, it's very fishy. Uh, it's very difficult to erase all the contents of your cell phone by entering the wrong password. Uh, no manufacturer would make it easy to do that. People have their, their contacts, they have their photos, they have all sorts of things on their cell phone. It's really hard to do it. And, you know, you brought up this, uh, speaking of Andrew Weissman, you brought up this question of Robert Mueller's cognitive decline. And we all saw on July 24th, 2019, when he testified before Congress, uh, it was supposed to be the big Watergate show for Democrats that was going to, Mueller was going to stand up and deliver this indictment of President Trump, and then the country would just decide that they wanted to remove President Trump from office. That was the big hope, and it was a disaster. Um, Mueller was clearly confused at times. He had difficulty answering some basic questions, couldn't form complex sentences, and people were were genuinely shocked at at that. But the, the Trump team was not shocked at that because more than a year earlier, April 2018, Rudy Giuliani has just joined the Trump defense. Uh, There's a get acquainted meeting. Uh, Mueller is there. The conversation turns, and you'll remember this very well. There's a Justice Department policy that says a sitting president cannot be indicted. That was a huge part of the whole Mueller-Trump case. 
the conversation turns to that, and Mueller does not remember it. He does not recall what this policy is. Now, the Robert Mueller of old would have known all about it, but he couldn't remember. And his, his staff was covering for him. They're saying, oh, well, we know all about it. We'll, we'll get back to you later. We'll talk later. Uh, but afterwards, the, the, the Trump team said, wow. What what was that? We we don't really know what's going on. He didn't seem familiar with the most basic aspects of the case. He didn't know what Fusion GPS is. He had Correct. no idea that Jeannie Ray was once Clinton's attorney. I mean, it's I, I, it was, was shocking the, to the hear this. this. Was a big concern, not just because. In, in addition to just the human concern about a man having difficulty dealing with things. The reason this was a big concern was, remember when he hired, at the beginning, he hired all of these very partisan Democrats to work on his investigation, including Andrew Weissman, who actually went to Hillary Clinton's election night event in New York City, which was supposed to be the big celebration. Didn't work out. Um, but and he also Mueller has hired, a history of prosecutorial abuse, as Sidney Powell you know, exactly. outlined he in her book. all of these partisan Democrats. And Donald Trump complained about this. He said, wait a minute, you're investigating me and you've hired partisan Democrats. And all of Mueller's defenders said, Bob Mueller is straight down the middle. He will keep these prosecutors in line. But when, when Trump's team could see behind the scenes that Mueller was perhaps not up to running the office, they then began to wonder who really is running this office. And I'll tell you, they never really found out. So I think one of the bigger blockbusters in the book is that Mueller's team knew very early in the investigation there was zero evidence of Russian collusion. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. Now, we know that James Comey, who signed the first FISA application, and the bulk of that information we now confirmed, it's not an issue anymore, uh, was the dirty dossier. Sally Yates said it, and, and McCabe had said it, and everyone else pretty much has said it, that without the dossier, they wouldn't have gotten the FISA application approved. So they relied on a, a bought-and-paid-for Russian misinformation document. Hillary paid for it, and Steele had a political agenda, and they kept all of this from the court. They were warned numerous times before the first FISA application. You know, then after the president's elected, uh, then Comey goes to Trump Tower, the famous Trump Tower meeting. There's this dossier. It's salacious, but it's unverified. Now, it says on the top of a FISA application, verified. Then we know that Steele's subsource when, was interviewed in January of 2017. The subsource said none of this is true. This is all bar talk. So they knew then that there was no evidence. They knew before the first FISA application. They certainly knew in January of 2017. That is absolutely correct. On this, you know, b behind the scenes, people didn't know this. Trump was stunned by the appointment of a special prosecutor. He, he, he didn't expect that. Uh, but once it happened, he had, to, he had to deal with the office. And he came up with, with a proposal that was really radical cooperation. He made a deal with Mueller. There was a, there was a meeting within the first few weeks of Mueller's uh, tenure. He didn't even have all of his office furniture yet. And the Trump, Trump team said to him, Look, President Trump wants this investigation over quickly. Now, you, the special counsel, you're going to want uh, all sorts of evidence from us. You're going to want documents. You're going to want to interview people. Uh, a lot of that's covered by executive privilege. We could object and it would take forever to fight it out. But here's the deal. President Trump will give you everything, all the, all the interviews, all the documents, everything, if 
you will promise to get this investigation over quickly. And Robert Mueller and John Dowd, the president's lawyer, shake hands over it. Never written down, wasn't signed, but they shake hands over it. So what happens is Mueller immediately begins to look for collusion, just like you were talking about. He's looking for collusion, but by the fall of 2017, after just a few months, the Trump people can see that Mueller's coming up with nothing. He has nothing. So in late 2017, in December, they have a big meeting, and the Trump people say, look, we know you've been looking for collusion. You haven't found it. It's time to wrap this up. We held up our end of the deal. We gave you everything, and it's time to wrap this up. And instead of wrapping it up, the Mueller's team said, no, we're not wrapping it up. We're going to look into allegations of obstruction of justice. And by the way, we need to interview the president. So all of this cooperation that the president had done with Mueller really came to nothing, even though Mueller could not find collusion. Pretty, pretty unbelievable when you think about it. Um, Now, you also in the book, you go into this whole impeachment obsessed party and how Nancy Pelosi gave in to the mob within her party. Uh, There was a real quid pro quo. And that was Joe Biden holding out a billion taxpayer dollars as leverage on tape, bragging about it. You're not getting a billion dollars unless you fire the prosecutor investigating my my zero experience son who went on GMA and said, do you have any expertise, knowledge and energy? No. And oil? No. Gas? No. Um, Ukraine? No. Why are you being paid millions, millions of dollars? I don't know. Um, uh, do you think because your father controlled the money? Maybe. Yeah, probably. That's it. Now, Ron Johnson is saying that the Ukraine report will show Joe Biden's unfitness for office. And Peter Schweitzer, who I think is a great investigative reporter, says new evidence makes Hunter Biden's business deals reek worse than ever. Um, so let's go back to what you put in your book, uh, which is that. On all of these things, Trump lawyers were less worried about the Democrats' Ukraine investigation, but then Nancy Pelosi gave into the pressure to do it. Yeah. Um, remember, during the 2018 uh, campaign for Congress, the Democratic strategy was don't talk about impeachment in public and plan for impeachment in private. And that's exactly what happened. And immediately after they won, Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, two of the um, chairman began uh, planning for impeachment. But, you know, there was a moment that happened in December 2019, which is not even a year ago, December 2019. House Democrats are racing to impeach the president. They are rushing to get it done by Christmas. And a reporter asked Nancy Pelosi, what is the hurry? What's the rush here? And Nancy Pelosi said, there's no rush. This has been going on for two and a half years since Mueller. And a lot of Republicans said, wow, finally, she has admitted it. This impeachment, it's not about Ukraine. It's not about a phone call. It's part of a continuing effort to try to remove the president from office. There was a long effort hoping to impeach the president on the basis of what Mueller found. And when that blew up, fizzled, whatever image you want to use, when that went away, Ukraine popped up. So the whole time, there was a long effort to remove the president from office. It's unbelievable. I mean, it is a page-turner, as Molly uh, Hemingway said. Uh, It's called Obsession Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. We'll continue with Byron York. I want to ask you when we get back if you think this is going to impact the election and if we're going to get a report or more indictments. 
And as we continue, our uh, investigative reporter, Washington Examiner, uh, co- political correspondent uh, Byron York is with us, also a Fox News contributor, obsession inside the Washington establishment's never-ending war on Trump. Uh, so I guess now the, the question is, what do we see out of Durham in the days leading up to this election? Is it going to be a report? Is it going to be more indictments? There's been a lot of speculation in the last 48 hours about what's coming next, and something's coming soon. Well, all the sound you just played from Bill Barr didn't really clarify it much. Um, A a lot of people thought it would have been out by Labor Day. Labor Day has come and gone. My feeling is uh, there's there's two ways to look at it. There's there's looking at a report as a way to find out more about what happened. And I think we're definitely going to get that. Uh, We're going to get that. It's going to tell us more, for example, about what the CIA did in targeting Trump. Um, that the Justice Department, Inspector General... I'm hearing the CIA might come out looking better than anybody thought, including myself. And as much as they were telling them not to use the dirty dossier. They were leaking it on the other hand, but they were... There was a debate about the dossier, and the CIA CIA called it Internet gossip. Um, But there is still more to learn about that. Now, on the question of indictments, I mean, clearly some people want to see some uh, somebody, you know, put in handcuffs and taken down to the station. I just don't know uh, if we're going to see that. Um, I'm hearing that there would be prominent names and maybe not some that I think absolutely should be there, but people that we will all know well. And that's that's the latest that I heard. Now, I don't know. We've been waiting a long time. Either way, you the know, book is the, fascinating. It's it's well researched. I got to give you a lot of credit as you always do impeccable research. Uh, it's called the obsession inside the Washington establishment's never-ending war on Trump. It'll never stop, even if the president wins re-election. Uh, Byron York. It's on Hannity.com, Amazon.com. Now out in bookstores everywhere. Uh, you have the audio book and Kindle uh, as well. Uh, thank you, sir, for being with us. Sean, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. He draws his inspiration from U.S. soldiers and the brave men and women who wear the blue. The warriors who never run from a fight, they run to it. And in this fight, to save the soul of our country, it's time to wake the silent majority. Let this moment radicalize you. The battle lines are drawn, the mission is clear, and the time is upon us. With your help on November 3rd, Republicans are going to win the House, win the Senate, and again win the White House. When the brave are prepared, there's no battle we can't win. Let's do this. Suit up, chin down, and he'll take the lead. This is The Sean Hannity Show. All right, buckle up 25 now till the top of the hour, and uh, this is the tipping point election of our lifetime, and there is only 39 days to go, and they will fly by. Now, a lot of revelations just literally come tumbling down. What did we learn in this week alone? The depth and extent of corruption, and they knew it the whole time. About quid pro quo, Joe Zero experience. Hunter goes way beyond Ukraine, and you're not getting the billion unless you fire the prosecutor investigating my zero experience. Some we'll get back to that. It also includes uh, Kazakhstan and Russia and China on levels we never dreamed of. Hundred thousand dollar Chinese funded shopping sprees. 
uh, bank transfers with Russian nationals, Ukrainian nationals, and Chinese nationals, and it goes so far beyond anything that we ever knew. We learned this week that the dirty steel dossier bought and paid for by Hillary Clinton, that the source for Christopher Steele that they knew was a Russian spy for 10 years prior, from 2009 on. And they still allowed it to be used. Remember, Andrew McCabe and Sally Yates, what'd they say? Without the Steele dossier, there is no FISA application. It would never have been granted. They purposely mislead the court. What did I call it then? What am I calling it now? Premeditated fraud on a FISA court for the purpose of spying on a presidential candidate, his transition team, and deep into the presidency. Well, Rand Paul and others saying, yeah, we need to investigate zero experienced Hunter. And remember at the heart of this, remember the impeachment over a phone call, President Zelensky, nothing on that phone call that was inappropriate. One fact witness in the entire impeachment process, the other witnesses were all hearsay or opinion witnesses. A one fact witness, what did the president say? He said he wants nothing. He didn't want a quid pro quo. He just wants them to, to clean up their act, which, by the way, is being responsible with taxpayer money. But that's not what Joe was bragging about in this tape, and that's not what Hunter was saying to Good Morning America. I said, I'm not gonna, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars. I said, you're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a <laughs> got fired. In the list that you gave me of the reasons why you're on that board, you did not list the fact that you were the son of the vice president. Of course, president. yeah. No, I, what I, role do you think that played? I think that it is impossible for me to be on any of the boards that I just mentioned without saying that I'm the son of the vice president of the United States. You were paid $50,000 a month for your position? Look, I'm a private citizen. One thing that I don't have to do is sit here and open my kimono as it relates to how much money I make or make or did or didn't. But it's all been reported. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. Even going to potential funding and associations with people that are known traffickers and those in the adult entertainment industry, if we're going to be polite about it. Matt Gates is uh, with us, by the way. He has a new book out, Firebrand, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the MAGA Revolution. Thank you, sir, for being with us. This has been a blockbuster week of revelations. Of course, the mob and the media is trying to ignore it, but I don't think the American people are going to ignore this. How are you, sir? Oh, thanks for having me, Sean. And it is something to look back at the evidence that we laid bare before the American people on the various platforms that uh, you manage about the lies of the Mueller team, about the bias that was there. And you'll remember the whole left-wing media apparatus, all the Democrats, and even some Republicans were shilling for the FBI, were saying that they did nothing wrong and that it had nothing to do with Donald Trump. In fact, it was like GOP icon Trey Gowdy who said that we should all just be happy with what the FBI is doing. They're not out to get Trump. The Mueller team should be allowed to do their work. And what those Republicans didn't realize is that the process is the punishment. This was never about having Donald Trump proven to be a Russian agent. That was nonsense from the start. They wanted this long investigation to cast a doubt on the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. 
because they don't want to have a real fair argument with the president about infrastructure or trade or immigration. It's all got to be about delegitimizing the messenger. The left was successful at distracting the country for years on this nonsense, and I'm disappointed in my fellow Republicans who didn't see clearly what this challenge really was. For years on this program and on my TV show, I, I said, and this is under Boehner, this is under Paul Ryan, that Republicans are weak, that they are feckless, that they're spineless, that they're visionless. Um, Donald Trump has has literally single-handedly revitalized a fight within the Republican ranks, and it's not everybody yet, but you're certainly part of it. Um, and there are, you know, 65 show votes on Obamacare to repeal and replace it. When it mattered, they were nowhere to be found. The U.S. Senate, you know, two, a year before Donald Trump's elected, they vote to, to just eliminate and uh, Obamacare, just erase it. And then seven, you know, when it mattered, seven uh, Republican senators uh, said, never mind, um, which which tells you everything you need to know about their weakness and their fecklessness and their lack of vision. Why is there this this why is there so few that want to get in the fire and fight? Well, Sean, I, I write in my book Firebrand that the political parties want to convince you that they're really there to save you and that the other party is out to get you. The reality is both parties are oftentimes partying on your dime, the American people, and the parties aren't even that fun. And so what it takes is that firebrand spirit that I think the president exemplifies to get people on board with challenging the status quo, challenging the system. And that was what the Russia hoax was about the whole time. President Trump, General Flynn, they were going to reorganize the intelligence apparatus. They weren't going to allow uh, you know, the tail to wag the dog when it came to unelected bureaucrats making the consequential decisions for our country. And that's a threat to just more than the Democrats. It's a threat to the bureaucracy. It's a threat to a system that has benefited a lot of Republicans. Look, how do you think Republicans get in Republican leadership? They play the game. And the game is corrupt and rigged against the American people. By the way, I've got to point out, you don't make friends in this book. You're not out to make friends in this book. Um, I was a little surprised at, at some of the blunt force honesty about Republican colleagues and others in the book, although I would like to guess the names of some of the other people that you, you talk about. I've discussed it in my own way. You know, Washington is like this incestuous cesspool, and, and you have the staffs of the congressmen and the senators, and sometimes the congressmen and the senators themselves. You know, they mix with the, with the media mob, and it's one big frat party, if you will, that's really going on with the winks and the nods and, you know, I'll give you this information if you give me good coverage. I mean, this is stuff, this is standard operating procedure in that town. Yeah, I mean, I, I write in the chapter Enemy of the People that the media has become less uh, an entity to investigate and report, and it's more about them making the news themselves. And, and that's why the Hannity program was so important all these years. It was an opportunity for us to get the truth out in front of the American people. And when we did, you know, the, the, the criers and the whiners over at CNN, oh, they were triggered to the 10th degree because they were trying to force feed the country lies about the president so that we wouldn't get to some of these key issues. And you bring the country into good focus by saying... Yeah, I'm not exactly not liked by the swamp either. I mean, I, I guess 45 pages of 302s would, would, it would be a good example of that. Or, or being number one on the list of people in our Ukrainian embassy in terms of being monitored. 
or 1,300 text messages, private text messages of mine being released publicly. I'd say that that puts me on the front lines right there with you. Not that I really give a flying rip, to be honest, at this point in my life and career. I just don't care. Um, Let me ask you about 39 days from now. You were the first to draw my attention to the issue of, you know, we all heard about Mike Bloomberg, you know, dumping $100 million into your state of Florida to influence the election to help Biden. Uh, But then being part of this effort and funding this effort and raising money for this effort to pay off the fines and whatever other civil penalties uh, that are owed by convicts that they believe, I guess, are going to vote for Biden. Uh, The attorney general now and the governor uh, are on your side in terms of investigating this, the attorney general of Florida. Where where do we stand with that? I called for an investigation of the Bloomberg activities in Florida on your program. Within 24 hours of that call, the Florida attorney general directed this Office of Statewide Prosecutor and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to look into it. Three key facts. One, this is not paying off fines for everybody. Uh, If you're white, if you're not previously registered to vote, uh, if you're not going to vote a particular way, no Bloomberg bailout for you. Two, uh, this is a situation where uh, they wrote an admission statement. Did they, by the way, this is all in writing that if if you don't profile as a Biden voter, that you're not going to get the money? Yeah, if some do-gooder just came in and said, I'm going to pay everybody's fines off, that wouldn't be criminal. But here you have this admissions statement where they say the reason we're doing it is because it creates an indebtedness of these people to us, to Biden, to vote. Third and finally, the Florida statute says that the inducement to get somebody to change their voting behavior uh, is does not have to be direct. It could also be indirect. So this novel feature of Florida law combined with the unprecedented statement by the Bloomberg Associates that they are specifically doing this to influence the election, I think warrants an investigation. You know, look, they they are not going to be able to steal this election from us in Florida, Sean. I'm worried about Pennsylvania. I'm worried about some other places. But we're going to run a clean election here. Well, I mean, probably because uh, I guess we have new electors down in in Broward County and Palm Beach County and some other parts of, of Florida. Right as we continue, Matt Gates is with us. Congressman Florida, his new book, Firebrand, dispatches from the front lines of the MAGA revolution, Amazon.com, Hannity.com, bookstores everywhere. Um, look, it's it's hard for any Republican to win. You've got to win Florida. That's never easy. It's always close. Georgia is going to be close. It, 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 you have, you've had shifting you know, trends towards the Democratic Party there in North Carolina. You got to pay very close attention to them, but but you've got to hold obviously Ohio. No Republicans made it to the White House without Ohio. Iowa, you got to hold that. Arizona, it's a very tight race. The president won it by four in 2016. Now recent polls have him up by two, but it's very tight. Uh, then you got to look at other states like Nevada and New Mexico. Yep. Uh, Nebraska, too, Maine Congressional District, too, could make all the difference in the end. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, New Hampshire all have to be in play also. Yeah, I mean, what's really happening to shift the political tectonic plates is the movement of Hispanic voters to President Trump. And I have a theory why. Is that real, by the way? That is that is so real. And it is animated by the Biden-Harris embrace of the most radical neo-Marxist, destructive, arsonistic impulses of the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot of Hispanics are, are builders. They build strong churches, strong families, strong communities. And you're talking, I just want to delineate, you're talking about Black Lives Matter, the group that chants, you know, what do we want, dead cops, when do we want them now? Yeah, the, the organizing elements of Black Lives Matter 
are explicitly Marxist. I mean, you know, th- that is what that is the political ideology that they are pushing. That's not to say that everyone who's engaged in a peaceful protest is a Marxist. But when you look at the organizing influence, that is what it is. And a lot of Hispanics are only one or two generations removed from real socialism, not like the socialism that you talk about in a hacky sack game at your favorite coffee shop, but like socialism where there's no bread to eat at the store. And, and I think that that is uh, helping us in Florida. It'll help in Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico. We're starting to see those states come into play in a new way, expanding the map of potential opportunities. So you predicted Trump victory. I got to run. <laughs>